It's really a thrill to see this many out on a Saturday morning. At 8 o'clock this morning, I looked at the clock and turned over, and Barb said, you're preaching this morning, so I had to get up. No, she said, it's 8 o'clock. I felt a little bit like the guy that woke up and told his mother that he wasn't going to go to school today. And she said, you have to go to school. And he said, why? And he said, well, number one, because you're 43, and number two, because you're the superintendent. And so, you know, I just had to be here this morning, and you didn't have to be here, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that you're here, and it really expresses to me a great interest, interest in uh, Jesus, and particularly in this subject on the grace of God. In Titus 2, verse 11, beginning, you have a beautiful, to me, description of the grace of God, and I want to deal this morning with the second thing he has to say about the grace of God in this paragraph. He says, and by the way, uh, last night I understand that some of you had a little difficulty hearing because I didn't know this lapel might quit working. Uh, it is working today, isn't it? And so if it doesn't, uh, Thomas Marion's going to holler at me real loud and then I'll get back to this microphone because it is uh, frustrating, I know, to sit and when I turn this way, you can't hear me. You hear me all right when I get over here this morning? Uh-oh. I'll try to stay off of that card. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for <clears throat> the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for, uh, and to purify for himself a people from all wickedness for his very own, excuse me, eager to do that which is good. And we're going to talk about the second, the last part of that uh, verse tonight as we talk about the grace of God inspires us. But our text this morning is the very middle of that paragraph. It teaches us. You know, I was a good while knowing that the grace of God was an instructor. You know, I knew it was a saving element. It brings salvation. It doesn't save itself. I mean, it itself is not the saving basis. That's God's love and kindness and mercy. But God's free gift of his son and the free gift of his word and the free gift of the church brings salvation to all men. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially them that believe. When we go out and talk to people, when we're sharing, this is all right, doing something wrong. Let's turn this off and let me just do this one, all right? I'll just stay near this mic. I don't, that bothers me when I do that. Now let's get it on where we can hear and everything and I'll go on with the lesson. I think it's going to be better to use this middle mic because it, it was, I think I felt it fading in and out anyway. There's something about this electronic equipment that uh, is, I'm allergic to it or something. I, I turn all electronic equipment off. Like a friend of mine turns off his watch every time he puts it on, I turn off electronic equipment. So uh, let's get back and think about what I was saying. Maybe I can get back in harmony with what I was about to say. I've known for a good long while that the grace of God saves, but I've never thought about too seriously 
the fact that the grace of God teaches us, that it instructs us. The fact that God has brought salvation to us instructs us. As we look at the cross of Christ, we're taught more than about God's love. We're also taught about how we should live. And Jesus there gave himself for us, but he did more than that. He also purified us for himself, a people, for his own possession. So he's interested more in us being saved. That's just a step toward what God is interested in. God is not interested simply in us being saved from sin's penalty and sin's practice and sin's propensity as we looked at last night, but he is interested in our becoming godly men and women. He's interested in us becoming like him, and that's why Jesus became like us. See, he, can, he, prov he proved his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And he came not only that we might be snatched out of the fires of hell. He's interested in that, and I'm interested in that too. But he came that I might know what to avoid and what to follow. It says it teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to say no. That's exactly the emphasis Paul has in Romans 6, 7, and 8, isn't it? After he's discussed the grace of God in its character in chapter 1, about verse 18 through chapter 3, about verse 20, he discusses the grace of God in its effectiveness in 321 to 521 to save, but then he talks about the standard of living and my response to Jesus' cross. Remember last night we started our lesson with a quote of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, where Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not found to be in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all. And abundant labor is the response Paul said he made to the grace of God. And he said without that response, he would have received God's grace in vain. So one can receive God's grace and be saved, but if it doesn't affect a changed life, it has been received in vain. We view things differently when we view it through the glasses of God's grace. When I look through the cross, when I look through the gift that God has given me at my life, my life becomes, with that look, different. It teaches us both negatively and positively. Now let's just take uh, Titus 2 as a text, and let's look at it, okay? He says in verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I heard a sermon a number of years ago that said yes was the Christian word. That's true, sometimes. But sometimes yes is not the Christian word. We have today a society where we say yes to everything and we want all the negatives eliminated. Well, no battery will run on two positive poles and no life will have any spark for Jesus until there is a negative relationship because of grace, not just because of law. I'm grateful for law because law reveals what's wrong, but I'm grateful for grace because it makes me shun what's wrong. The law never will make you shun what's wrong for law. You'll do it temporarily, but then the memory of law fades. The memory of Calvary cannot. It is impossible for me to forget the cross of Christ. Well, that's not true. 
But it should be, shouldn't it? I mean, the, to the memory of the cross is much more vivid in my mind than the memory of law. During the Civil War, there was a general named Garden. He was a bad guy, evidently, not too good of a general, but he was loyal to the South, which therefore he lost, and loyal to his men. Well, after, after the war, he became uh, sort of an ill repute, and one of his soldiers, one of his, one of his underlings, took him to court. And when he got to court and was really pressing the case, he turned to look at the general and wept and turned to the judge and said, I remove all charges. And everybody asked him why. He said, during a severe battle, when I was about to die, the general jumped between me and the sword of a cavalry man in the north and he took a sword right here and I had forgotten the scar. He said, but when I looked at the scar and realized what he'd done for me, what he'd done against me was really of no value at all. Many times we forget the scars. And because we forget the scars, we give our lives over to compromise. We give our lives over to hypocrisy, and then we give our lives over to immorality. It says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Now, we could study all day long on ungodliness. There are passages that list all kind of ungodliness. Listen briefly to one of them. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not to do. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. Now, here are the list of ungodliness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Malice, they are gossips. What's that sin doing in the midst of all these bad ones? They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. That's out of place too, isn't it? They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now that's a list of ungodliness. And Paul in Galatians 5 gives a similar list, doesn't he? Starting in 19, going to 21, and it just says things like that. So things that are not like God, that's what ungodliness is. Un means not, and God means God. So things that are not like God. Anything that you don't visualize Jesus doing or God smiling while you do it, you are taught by grace to say no to. The cross was not easy. And the cross-like life is not an easy life. It's a negative life as well as a positive life. We need to learn to say no. All children need to be taught to say no. And you know how they can be taught to say no? They hear mother and daddy say what? No. And they see mother and daddy say what? To the things that other mother and daddy say yes to, they see their mother and daddy say no to to the point that finally, raised like Joseph was in Jacob's loyal and faithful to God house, he can get to Egypt where nobody's looking and where he is the steward of all of Potiphar's house and he can say no to Potiphar's wife even if it cost him his coat and his freedom. And it cost him both of that, didn't it? to say no to ungodliness. It cost him his coat in Potiphar's wife's house and it cost him years in Potiphar's prison. And that's what saying no sometimes costs people. Saying no to ungodliness and into worldly passions. That's, 
That's behind the ungodliness. Passions, you understand the word, don't you? Passion is that white, hot lust. It doesn't have to be an ungodly lust. But when it's a worldly passion, without passion, life has no compassion. You see, you can't feel that deep feeling with somebody until you feel that deep feeling within you. Passion is within and compassion is without, but it's the same white, hot feeling directed toward God. We call it commitment. Directed toward the world, we call it sin, ungodly lust, worldly passions. 1 John 2, love not the world, neither the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is all the world, and it passes away, and the whole, the whole system, and whoever loves the world passes away with it, John says. The, the ungodly passions, the worldly passions are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. The desire to be satisfied, the desire to be secure, and the lust to be right. Did you hear that last one? Because, you see, that affects religious people a whole lot more than the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. The lust, the lust of the flesh is translated in the NIV here, the cravings of this flesh, the cravings of the world. That doesn't bother many people that fall head over heels in love with Jesus. You know, all of a sudden, all of the, all of the things of satisfying my lust, my, my sexual lust, my appetite for food, all of that fades into some insignificance when I fall in love with Jesus. And it's not the powerful pull, at least on me, that it used to be. And the lust of the eyes, the desire to have, the desire to be secure, the desire to be rich, the desire to be successful, that means quote marks, with two vertical lines between all the S's making them dollar marks. That, that lust and that, that craving really ceases to have a whole lot of appeal once really one falls head over heels in love with Jesus. But sometimes our pride to be right. You know, our pride that says, I have got to be right and correct in all that I believe and teach. Maybe that's really only a lust of preachers. Maybe, maybe it's not much, much of a lust to my brethren. But at hearing us argue and hearing us try to get everything just exactly right before we even begin the journey makes me think that perhaps the, the pride of life has a bigger pull upon us than we would like to admit. And all the rules and all the regulations and all the withdrawals and, and all of those things that we go through to try to make everything doctrinally correct and we're still doctrinally incorrect. I do really believe that if we would be people that yielded to the grace of God rather than strove to follow the law, we'd get to following the law done and we'd also get to evangelization of this city and this state and this world done. If we'll just learn to say no, we won't have to spend any time doing those things. You know, I have found that no is a, is a hard word to argue with. When it is said loud with about two or three explanation points after it. You know, I, I, get a, I travel around some and I get an opportunity to move. Well, I know, number one, if I moved, I'd have to compute, commute back here to visit my wife every now and then because she's not going nowhere. But it's not hard for them not to ask me a second time because I don't say I'll think about it. I say, no. And it is amazing the silence that follows the no. 
They know how to handle, I'll talk about it. They know how to handle a, a deal. They say, well, that might be good. They know how to handle all that. They talk on. But they just, and especially when it's over the phone, would you think about moving over here? No. I wait sometimes 10 seconds before they say, well, okay, and hang up. Do we treat the devil that way? There is the real secret of life, isn't it? The real secret of a pure life is the ability to say to the devil in a very convincing way, no, thank you, no. I am not interested in that. Why? I am not that kind of person. That's basically what Joseph told Potiphar's wife, wasn't he? Wasn't it? He said, how can a man like me do that? I cannot do that. I am the Son of God. The number one thing that I want my children to know is whose children they are. And if they know they are the children of God, then that will direct their lives a whole lot more than any fear of their mother or fear of their father will ever do. And that's why it's such a joy to see children grow up to maturity and learn in their maturity their relationship to God that enables them to say no. Now if only their parents will learn it. Now if only their parents will learn to say no to all of the ungodliness of this world and the worldly passions. Well, I'd like to preach that point longer, but I, I told Brian we was going to get out of here about 15 till so everybody can get up to Jake's seminar. It teaches us to say no and it teaches us to live. I like the positive more than the negative. It teaches us to live, he says, three ways. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Self-control, what does that mean? That means being in control of your life. Not at all. Not at all. He's not talking about being in control. He's talking about being under control. And there is a big difference in taking control and being under control. You know, there's a statement now, take control and be in control. Everybody wants to do that, and there's seminars on taking control of your life. And the reason why the same people attend those seminars year after year after year is because they're being told a lie. And that is that they can actually be in control of their life. The way of man is not in himself before or after he's baptized. The way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. And all the positive thinking rallies of all the world that doesn't center in the fact that the only way to be under control is to surrender is going to lose the battle day after day and year after year. And so if you're trying to get by on the latest Dennis Whateley book or the latest Zig Ziglar book, or the latest book of somebody's written about how you can be in control, you better put a lot of money in the bank to buy a book about every week because you're going to have to have that air pumped in you. And that's all that's going to happen. They're going to pump air into a leaky balloon all of your life. The only way to win is to lose. Does that sound biblical? The only way to be first is to be last. Does that sound biblical? And the only way to be great is to become the servant of all. So when he talks about self-control lives, he means self under control. He doesn't mean self in control. If self is in control, we're not going to have self-control lives because you can't control your life. And if you think, or I think that we're, under, that we're in control of our lives, the devil smiles in hell and God weeps in heaven. <laughs> 
but the very time that we yield, and that's the requirement for self-control. Read Romans 6. Just insert it in your mind right here and read it later. Read Romans 6. If we will ever yield, if we will ever give up, then God will take control of our lives. For except a seed fall into the ground and die, it abides by itself alone. But if it dies, and I love the buts in the Bible, but if it dies, it will bear much fruit. The only way that I can be taught by the grace of God how to live is to die to my way of life. I've got to die to sin. We talked about that last night. I've got to die to self. We're talking about that right now. I've got to die to society. We're talking about that right now. I've got to die to sin's control, self's control, and society's control. I've got to die to being in control, of wanting to be in control, of wanting to take control of my life because if I want to take control of my life, the chances are about nine out of four that I'll end up wanting to take control of somebody else's life. I don't want to be in control of my life. I want my life under the control of somebody that knows all the past, all the present, and all the future. Because in trying to be in control, I will not be able to because I don't even understand the present and I don't even have a glimmer of the future and I don't remember much of the past. But the one that's in control of my life has perfect memory, has perfect knowledge of what's going on and perfect foreknowledge of everything that will occur and therefore he can work out everything in my life for my good even when it seems out of control. Oh, Jacob thought his life was out of control, didn't he? In the book of Genesis, about chapter 45, he says, all these things are against me. Joseph is dead. Benjamin is, I mean, uh, Simeon is dead. And you want to take Benjamin back that he might die? All these things are against me. He says, I'm out of control. I thought I had my life in control. And now it's out of control. Was any of that against him? Well, he wasn't even right. Was Joseph dead? Was Simeon dead? He didn't even know the present too well, did he? And he sure didn't know the future. He says, all these things are against me. He was trying to control. That was Jacob's big sin, wasn't it? He was, what does his name mean? Jacob, you remember? What does it mean, Rhonda? Supplanter. That's absolutely right. He was one who, he was a con man. He tried to control his own life and the life of others. He tried to work everything out and control the future. And so God had to put him down and pay down Aram under another conniver, Laban, and then have him wrestle with the angel ever to, for Jacob, the supplanter, the one who got by on his wits to become Israel, the one who has power with God. And now when he became Israel, he turned his life over to God, but he forgot it again and said, all these things are against me because he had not yielded. I know that what I'm saying probably runs counter-purpose to many things that we have built our lives on. Because the American way of life is you are in control of the situation. You determine what happens. That is a bunch of hooey. That's hogwash. That's baloney. That's not true. That's not true at all. Now, you may be for a period of four or five years or maybe even three score and ten in control of things, but do you realize there's an eternity? And that God is in control of that. So even though this is anti-American, it's still scriptural. I mean, this is not, this is diametrically opposed to the American view of success. To not be in control. 
I'm so glad I'm not in control because I used to be and I was failing and now God is and I'm winning. And I like winning more than I like losing, especially when eternity is at stake. Then he says, it teaches us not only to live self-controlled but upright. The word upright's not hard to understand. Up means up and right means right. Standing correctly according to a standard. We not only live lives under the control of Jesus, but we live lives according to a standard when we're taught by the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to live according to the standard. Well, how does the grace of God teach that? Jesus did, and he's the great gift of God, isn't he? Isn't, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. There's God's grace in one word. It's Jesus. What are we saved from last night? We learned in one word, sin. What's the grace of God in one word? It's Christ. And looking at Jesus teaches us to live upright lives. And maybe that's one reason why once we get grown, we sort of leave the Gospels behind. Because we do, don't we? In, the, in, in Bible class and, and in our own private reading, or at least in mine, maybe I'm different. I for years read more in the epistles of Paul than I did in the Gospels of Christ. Maybe it's because I was looking for the rules rather than the example. Which is easier for you to follow, instructions or example? I don't care who you are, example is. I can't follow instructions. My wife will testify to that. Back when the kids were smaller, we'd buy two of everything for Rhonda and, and, uh, and Byron. And so she, we'd start to put them together and I'd lose my Christianity. And so I'd watch her put one together and I could put the other one together. I could follow her example, but never the instructions. That's why God didn't send a set of instructions. He didn't send a manual on how to be what he wanted you to be. He sent a man. And a man's a lot better than a manual. Now that I've looked at the man and the Gospels, the manual and the epistles becomes a whole lot more understandable and a whole lot more doable. I will learn to live an upright life, not by law, but by Christ. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John states in John chapter 1. So what's my requirement here? If I'm going to be self-controlled, I've got to yield. If I'm going to be upright, I've got to study. But I've got to study Jesus. And more than study, I have to follow. I think going all the world and preach the gospel is a great commission. I really believe that's a great commission. There's a greater one. There is a greater commission than that one. It's found in John 21. The great commission is found in John 20. He says, you know, Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they retain. He says, go and forgive sins. Go and preach the gospel. People will be saved, John 20. But in John 21, when Peter asked after Jesus had talked to him a while about feeding his sheep, he said, well, what about this guy? What he's going, what's he going to do? He said, none of your business what he's going to do. You follow me. I believe there's a greater commission. It's a whole lot easier to stand up here and preach than it is to be like Christ. You understand that? It's a whole lot easier to sit down and teach somebody what they ought to do than it is to be Jesus Christ to them, to be able to say, you follow me because I follow Christ. And to be able to say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. 
Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be taught by the grace of God, we're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because his example is a whole lot more powerful, changing agent in my life and in the life of others than all of the rules and all the regulations and all the doctrines will ever be. Now, I'm not, understand, I am not downplaying rules and regulations. I'm saying they're second, and that's fairly high up. The rules and the regulations are second. First of all is be like Jesus. Follow his example. Now, that's hard for me to get across to me and to you. It's real hard for brothers and sisters that have grown up, grown up in, in any religion, but particularly in the church of Christ. It's real hard for us to cease to be rule-centered and become person-centered. And until we become person-centered, we will not even do a good job of following the rules because it's the grace of God that teaches us to live upright lives, not the law. I know that's true. Because for 1,500 years, what did Jews have? They had the law. And what didn't they live? Upright lives. Was the law taught? Of course it was taught. I mean, it was stressed. Every time they were together, the law was read and stressed. They were told, I shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not bear false witnesses. Thou, over and over again, they were told, Thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. What did they do? What they were told, Thou shall not to do. If anybody could have kept the law, I'd have voted on Saul of Tarsus. Upright man, one that exceeded in his religion, those of his own age, graduated valedictorian, magna cum laude from, from Gamaliel's School of Preaching. I mean, he had, he had everything going for him that could go under the law. And he says, when I lived under the law, I didn't want to do evil, and that's the very thing I practiced. He said, I wanted to do good, and I never could practice that which was good. Then he wrote to Philippians and said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Saul of Tarsus said, I wanted to practice right and practice wrong. I didn't want to practice wrong, and I practiced wrong, practiced it. He says, but when I came to Christ, God worked in me both the willing and the doing of his goodwill. Look to Jesus. Then he says he teaches us to live godly lives. What does that mean? That means lives like God. After I've looked to Jesus, I found out what God is like. No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's the American standard. The word declared means to bring out the meaning of. It's a word from which the word exegesis comes today, and exegesis is what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to, exe I'm trying to give an exegesis of this text. I'm trying to get us to see what this text means and not just what it says. And that's what God, that's what God did when he sent Jesus. He sent an exegesis, not just to tell us what God says, but to tell us what God means, what God is like. What's God like? He likes little children. That's what God's like. He likes to have them on his lap, and he likes to hold them up in his arms, and he likes to kiss them. What's, God's, what's God like? He likes to forgive prostitutes. He loves prostitutes. What's God like? He doesn't like leprosy. 
and he doesn't like demon possession. He hates that kind of thing. What's God like? Well, God loves his, God, God loves his mother. God loves his mother so much that when he's dying, he wants her cared for and recognized that their relationship has changed. And so God says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's no longer, she's no longer Jesus' mother. When he died on the cross, Mary ceased to be his mother and became his servant. And he ceased to be her son and became her savior. See, God really loves his mother. That's what God's like. I look at Jesus and I find out what God is like. God, God loves his friends. I mean, he can, he can be comfortable in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. He can let his feet be washed. You know, he, he can be comfortable enough to, to tell Martha, 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 you're really too concerned about something's not all important today. That's what God's like. To be godly means to be like God to do things that God would do. I really believe that I would live a much better life if every time before I got heavily involved in something, I would ask the question, if it were Jesus making the decision, what would he do? If Christ were here and he was trying to determine whether he wanted to be involved in this business or involved in that ministry or involved with that person, would he get involved? How would he get involved? That he would get involved with the person is absolutely true. He might not get involved with the business, and he might not get involved with the ministry, but name me the person he didn't get involved with. What's God like? He's a people person, isn't he? Isn't God a people person? He's more interested in people than he, are the, than he is the rules. He'll set aside any rule that has to be set aside for a man to be benefited. The Sabbath rule is set aside when man is hungry. The rule that you don't get an ox out of the ditch or the rule that you don't do work is set aside when you won't get an ox out of a ditch. He cares for, more for man than he does the Sabbath day. He cares more for oxen than he does the Sabbath day. People are the essential ingredient to God. And to live a godly life means that people are the center of my life. On the bottom line, that's what it is to live godly. Now, I'm sure that I won't commit adultery. and I'm sure that I won't lie. And I'm sure that I won't covet what belongs to my neighbor. And I'm sure I'm not going to build an altar up here to God. And I'm sure I'm going to keep all the rules. But I, I'm sure of that. But that's not the center of my life. And that's not the proof of my godliness. And that's not really godly living. That's just moral living. Nearly everything I just named, pagan people do. Oh, they build an idol every now and then. But pagan people don't commit adultery and pagan people are good parents and pagan people don't lie. Pagan people live good moral lives and godly living is more than moral living. He's not speaking here about only not doing this and doing that. He's speaking here of imitating God. And if I want to do that, I better saturate my mind with the Gospels. I said, you already said that. Yeah, that's important. I'm going to say it again. I'd better saturate my mind with the Gospels of Jesus. I beg, I beg you, I plead with you, let your quiet time for about a year be in the Gospels. And every time you face Jesus, ask a series of questions. What am I to learn from what Jesus is doing here? How can I put it into practice the rest of this day? How can I share it with others that they can too? And if those three questions, that series of questions is asked of Luke 5 when Jesus touches the leper and, 
and touches the paralytic and, and touches the tax collector that nobody else will touch. As he touches the untouchables, what am I to learn here? How can I put it into practice today? How can I share it with Gary so he can put it in practice today? If we'll do that, then we will live godly lives. And what will have taught us to do it? Fear of hell? No. Love for the law? No. The grace of God? And then we'll love law and fear hell. Because we've learned from Jesus what godly living is all about. Well, I need to quit. What's our work? Wait. Wait. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Students have to wait. And if the grace of God is teaching me, I have to wait. The apostles were always chafing at the bit. Strive it. Let me go, let me go, let me go. And Jesus said, no, don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet. And he'd convert, he'd heal somebody. Let me go tell. He said, no, don't tell anybody yet. Why? They're not ready. So we need to wait. That's what the text says. While we wait for the blessed hope. We're going to be students while we're waiting for the blessed hope. While waiting, serve. That's what wait means. Those that wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as an eagle. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Waiting means mounting up, running, and walking. Isaiah 40, verse 30 and 31. Mounting, running, and walking. Mount means flying, not getting on a horse. They will mount up with wings like an eagle. They'll fly, they'll soar. They'll make a dash toward what they see, but they'll walk with steady pace toward it. Walk, walk, walk. And then when you get older, you can do the only required thing. You may need a king, but you can walk. In this very building, one vacation Bible school where I wasn't teaching, the education director at that time wasn't Ken Miller. He's got better sense than this. Grabbed me out of a class to go teach the fourth grade boys and girls. Ooh, was I underqualified or overqualified, one or the other. I definitely wasn't qualified. We're studying 1 John. And I asked this question in the class. What is it to walk? She's married now. But the little girl held up her hand. I said, what is it, honey? She says, it's to be further along than you used to be. That's the best definition I've ever got of my single requirement to be taught by the grace of God. All the grace of God wants me to do is take one step. One step at a time. I'm through. So I don't see any reason to say anything but God bless you and your study of his word. If you need to respond to Jesus, do so quickly while we stand and sing.